Welcome to my podcast. This is David R. Wellens Reads Literature, The Romantic Period, and this section is The Slave Trade and the Literature of Abolition. I'm going to read today um, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, uh, as well as uh, William Cobbett and Mary Prince, uh, and that'll be the episodes today. Remember, please support this podcast. There are ways to do it. Uh, you can see on the introduction. Uh, I really appreciate your uh, support. That way I can continue to deliver these uh, these podcasts of actual literature. Thank you very much. And here we go. Samuel Taylor Coleridge. When Coleridge and his friend Robert Salvey were still planning the utopian community they hoped to establish in the Pennsylvanian wilderness, they decided to raise funds by giving public lectures and charging admission. One of Coleridge's lectures, given in Bristol in June 1795, was on the slave trade, an incendiary topic given the sources of Bristol's prosperity. Coleridge reworked his lecture for the fourth number of his periodical, The Watchman, in March 1796. In its climax, reproduced here, he proposes that, for ethical reasons, abolition should come about not through legislation, but as the consequence of British consumers' determination to abstain from slave-grown sugar. The dining rooms in which families consume their jams and sweetened tea are in Coleridge's account, scenes of deplorable failure of the moral imagination. Every woman, he suggests, who, every even women, he suggests, who are excessively ready to empathize with the imaginary victims they encounter in their sentimental novels, are blind to the cruelties that bring West Indian commodities to their tables. Coleridge's lecture reveals how abolitionist rhetoric, built on a long tradition of moral strictures associating corruption and a modern taste for luxury goods. And this uh, selection by Coleridge is from On the Slave Trade. On the Slave Trade. The Abbe Raynal computes that at the time of his writing, nine million, nine millions of slaves had been consumed by the Europeans, add one million since, for it is nearly thirty years since his book was first published, and recollect that for one procured ten at least are slaughtered, that a fifth die in the passage, and a third in the seasoning, and the calculation will amount to 180 million. Ye who have joined in this confederacy, ask of yourselves this fearful question. If the God of justice inflict on us that mass only of anguish, which we have wantonly heaped on our brethren, what must a state of retribution be? But who are they who have joined in this Tartarian confederacy who are these kidnappers and assassins 
in all reasonings, neglecting the intermediate links, we attribute the final effect to the first cause. And what is the first and constantly acting cause of the slave trade? That cause by which it exists and deprived of which it would immediately cease. Is it not self-evidently the consumption of its products? And does not then the guilt rest on the consumers? And is it not an allowed axiom in morality that wickedness may be multiplied but cannot be divided, and that the guilt of all attaches to each one who is knowingly an accomplice? Think not of the slave captains and slaveholders, these very men, their darkened minds and brutalized hearts, will prove one part of the dreadful charge against you. They are more to be pitied than the slaves, because more depraved. I address myself to you, who independently of all political distinctions, profess yourself Christians. As you hope to live with Christ hereafter, you are commanded to do unto others as ye would that others should do unto you. Would you choose that a slave merchant should incite an intoxicated chieftain to make war on your country and murder your wife and children before your face or drag them with yourself to the market? Would you choose to be sold to have the hot iron hiss upon your breasts? after having been crammed into the hold of a ship with so many fellow victims that the heat and stench arising from your diseased bodies should rot the very planks? Would you that others should do this unto you? And if you shudder with selfish horror at the bare idea, do you yet dare be the occasion of it to others? The application of the legislature was altogether wrong. I am not convinced that on any occasion a Christian is justified in calling for the interference of secular power, but on the present occasion it was superfluous. If only one-tenth part among you who profess yourselves Christians, if one-half only of the petitioners, instead of bustling about with ostentatious sensibility, were to leave off not all the West India commodities, but only sugar and rum, the one useless and the other pernicious, all this misery might be stopped. Gracious heaven, at your meals you rise up, and pressing your hands to your bosoms, you lift up your eyes to God and say, O oh Lord, bless this food, which has which thou hast given us. A part of that food among most of you is sweetened with brother's blood. Lord, bless the food which thou hast given us. O oh, blasphemy, did God give food mingled with the blood of the murdered? Will God bless the food which is polluted with the blood of his own innocent children? Surely, if the inspired philanthropist of Galilee were to revisit earth and be among the feasters as at Cana, he would not now change water into wine, but convert 
the produce into the things producing, the occasion into the things occasioned. Then with our fleshly eye should we behold what even now imagination ought to paint to us instead of our, our, our instead of conserves tears tears and blood and for music groanings and the loud peals of the lash there is observable among the many a false and bastard sensibility that prompts them to remove those evils and those evils alone which by hideous spectacle or clamorous outcry are present to their senses and disturb their selfish enjoyments other miseries though equally certain and far more horrible they not only do not endeavor to remedy they support they fatten on them provided the dunghill be not before their parlor window they are well content to know that it exists and that it is the hotbed of their pestilent luxuries to this grievous failing we must attribute the frequency of wars and the continuance of the slave trade the merchant finds no argument against it in his ledger the citizen at the crowded feast is not nauseated by the stench and filth of the slave vessel the fine lady's nerves are not shattered by the shrieks she sips a beverage sweetened with human blood even while she is weeping over the refined sorrows of warder or of clementina sensibility is not benevolence nay by making us tremblingly alive to trifling misfortunes it frequently prevents it and induces effeminate and cowardly selfishness our own sorrows like the prince of hell in milton's pandemonium sit enthroned bulky and vast while the miseries of our fellow creatures dwindle into pygmy forms and are crowded an innumerable multitude into some dark corner of the heart there is one criterion by which we may always distinguish benevolence from mere sensibility benevolence impels to action and is accompanied by self-denial and that was uh, 1796 The next section of this of this episode is uh, William Cobbett. William Cobbett. The Political Register, a digest of news combined with commentary that appeared weekly from 1802 until 1835, made William Cobbett, 1763 to 1835, the most influential journalists of the 19th century. The paper began as a loyalist organ, but over time, as Cobbett came to support parliamentary reform, it morphed into the vehicle for an increasingly heated criticism of the government. When Cobbett launched a broadside version of the Political Register in 1816, priced at two pence to target working-class readers, his former allies condemned him for poisoning the minds of the people. In this long, varied career, 
in his, in this long varied career, Cobbett's loathing for William Moore Wilberforce was one of the few constants, and another being Cobbett's suspicion of the abolitionist cause embraced by Wilberforce and his fellow evangelical do-gooders. Mere sentimentalism, or even a plot, Cobbett sometimes implied to direct attention away from the plight of English workers, poor white slaves in this kingdom. A political register essay from 1823 called on Wilberforce to ponder the lives of factory workers paid starvation wages, and then believe, if you can, that we shall think you a man of humanity, making as you do such a bawling about the blacks, imaginary sufferings, and saying not a word about the sufferings of your own country, people. Aluda Requano's career illustrated how working-class radicalism and abolition could be fused. But Cobbett, convinced of Africans' racial inferiority, would not contemplate such solidarity. The editorial excerpted here appeared in the political register in the first year of its run, just as the parliamentary campaign for abolition was revived. It takes the form of a letter that Cobbett claims to have sent six years earlier to the Bishop of Rochester, warning this member of the House of Lords to dire consequences should the abolition bill pass. And this is from Slave Trade. That the sacred scriptures of the Old and New Testament authorize a slave trade, your lordship dares not deny. Nay, my lord, you must allow they do more. Under the law, the slave trade is in a manner commanded by God Almighty, and under the gospel dispensation, the holding of slavery persons, purchases slaves, is not only mentioned by our blessed Savior and his apostles without censure or dis disappropriation, but rules are given by St. Paul in First Peter, how slaves ought to demean themselves to their masters. If the purchasing slaves be now inhuman and unjust, it must always have been so, and the keeping persons in slavery so unjustly acquired must have been equally so, and your lordship must either allow the purchase and possession of slaves to be consistent with the law of God, unless you can show when that law was abrogated, or acknowledge that the patriarchs, prophets, apostles, martyrs, saints, confessors, fathers, and bishops of the Church of God, both under the law and the gospel, who have purchased, sold, or possessed slaves, bondmen and bondmaids, have acted with cruelty, oppression, inhumanity, and injustice. Such an opinion would be directly contrary to those doctrines which your Lordship teaches, and which you and Mr. Wilberforce profess to believe. This notable discovery of the inhumanity and injustice of the slave trade has never been made until the present era, era of anarchy and confusion, wherein impious men have presumed to set up their own ideas of humanity and justice in contradiction to the laws of God as the standard of perfection.
it may have hitherto escaped your lordship's attention that the present attack on the property and reputation of the West Indian planters and the African merchants originates from the same set of people who, 150 years ago, voted peers and bishops to be useless. Do you think, my lord, these people to have so far changed their principles as not to have as strong an inclination as formerly? in bind in bind kings in chains and nobles in links of iron can you my lord suppose these people less capable of injuring your lordships than they were in the middle of the last century because they have for their allies the philosophers the illuminers the atheists and the jacobins of france what these people have been capable of they have already shown you. They have availed themselves of the mistaken zeal of Mr. Wilberforce, the Humane Society of the Old Jewry, and the Missionary, the Reverend Mr. Clarkson, in preaching the doctrines of liberty and equality to the Negroes. Under pretense of abol abolishing slavery and the slave trade, they have not only been the means of spreading ruin and desolation throughout the French West Indian colonies, and in some of those belonging to Great Britain, St. Vincent's in Granada, inhabited by Frenchmen, but also by abolishing the Christian religion, imprisoning, banishing, or murdering nobles, bishops, and priests, and, as heretofore, of converting churches and other buildings dedicated to religion into arsenals, stables, and slaughterhouses, while the rents, revenues, and tithes of peers, bishops, and priests have been the reward of the spoilers. My lord, the principal means whereby the anarchists of France have been enabled to effect their dreadful rebellious and anti-Christian purposes were by encouraging a disbelief of the sacred scriptures and revealed religion. Will the setting at naught and slighting the authority of the scriptures, which are a strong support of our claim to right to buy slaves, strengthen that belief in them, which is the best and surest foundation on which the title of your lordship to the respect of the laity is built. That was 1802. The next section is Mary Prince, and that's... Um, Mary Prince. Uh, in 1831, Mary Prince, born a slave in Bermuda, sometimes around 1788, then living as a free woman in London, became the English tradition's first black female autobiographer. As the journalist Thomas Pringles explains in the preface that vouches for this often devastating memoir's authenticity, the idea of writing Mary Prince's history was first suggested by herself. She wished, it, she wished it to be done, she said. Pringle, secretary of the Anti-Slavery Society, furthered her project by arranging for a white lady visitor to take down her words, so the good people in England might hear from a slave what a slave has, had felt and suffered. Prince's motives for recalling past sufferings were personal as well. In England, where Prince's last owner, the merchant John Wood, 
had brought her in 1828 to labor as a washerwoman and nanny to his children. Emancipation had been the law of the land since the Mansfield judgment. Prince was therefore quick in reckon to recognize that Wood had inadvertently presented her with an opportunity. I knew that I was free in England, she explains. If, however, Prince returned to the West Indies so as to rejoin the husband her master had forced her to leave behind, she would forfeit that freedom and revert to her slave status. The history of Mary Prince protests this dilemma. It demonstrated to the reading public of 1831, who brought up three editions of the pamphlet, that their compla complacency about the morality of empire was premature and that the freedom black subjects could claim under the empire's laws remained fatally qualified. Soon after 1831, Prince disappears from the historical record. It is unknown whether publication of the history proved effective for Prince personally, but it doubtless helped speed passage of the Emancipation Bill in 1833. And this section is from the history of Mary Prince, a West Indian slave, related by herself. My new master was one of the owners or holders of the salt ponds, and he received a certain sum for every slave that worked upon his premises, whether they were young or old. This sum was allowed him out of the profits arising from the salt works. I was immediately sent to work in the salt water with the rest of the slaves. This work was perfectly new to me. I was given a half barrel and a shovel and had to stand up to my knees in the water from four o'clock in the morning till nine when we were given some Indian corn boiled in water, which we were obliged to swallow as fast as we could for fear of the rain. for fear the rain should come on and melt the salt. We were then called again to our tasks and working and worked through the heat of the day, the sun flaming upon our heads like fire and raising salt blisters in those parts which were not completely colored, covered. Our feet and legs from standing in the salt water for so many hours soon became full of dreadful boils which eat down, in some cases, to the very bone, afflicting the sufferers with great torment. We came home at twelve, ate our corn soup, called blawley, as fast as we could, and went back to our employment till dark at night. We then shoveled up the salt in large heaps and went down to the sea, where we washed the pickle from our limbs and clean the barrels and shovels from the salt. When we returned to the house, our master gave us each our allowance of raw Indian corn, which we pounded in a mortar and boiled in water for our suppers. We slept in a long shed, divided into narrow slips, like the stalls used for cattle, boards fixed upon stakes driven into the ground, without mat or covering, were our only beds. 
On Sundays, after we had washed the salt bags and done other work required of us, we went into the bush and cut the long, soft grass, of which we made trusses for our legs and feet to rest upon, for they were so full of the salt boils that we could get no rest lying upon the bare boards. Though we worked from morning till night, there was no satisfying Mr. D. I hoped when I left Captain I that I should have been better off, but I found it was but going from one butcher to another. There was this difference between them. My former master used to beat me while raging and foaming with passion. Mr. D. was usually quite calm. He would stand by and give orders for a slave to be cruelly whipped and assist in the punishment without moving a muscle of his face, walking about and taking snuff with the greatest composure. Nothing could touch his hard heart, neither sighs, nor tears, nor prayers, nor streaming blood. He was deaf to our cries and careless of our sufferings. Mr. D. has often stripped me naked, hung me up by the wrists, and beat me with the cowskin with his own hand, till my body was raw with gashes. Yet there was nothing very remarkable in this, for it might serve as a sample of the common usage of the slaves on that horrible island. I still live in the hope that God will find a way to give me my liberty and give me back to my husband. I endeavor to keep down my fretting and to leave all to him, for he knows that is what is good for me better than I know myself. Yet I must confess I find it a hard and heavy task to do so. I am often much vexed, and I feel great sorrow when I hear some people in this country say that the slaves do not need better usage and do not want to be free. They believe the foreign people who deceive them and say slaves are happy. I say not so. How can slaves be happy when they have the halter around their neck and the whip upon their back and are disgraced and thought no more of than beasts and are separated from their mothers and husbands and children and sisters just as cattle are sold and separated? Is it happiness for a driver in the field to take down his wife or sister or child and strip them and whip them in such a disgraceful manner? Women that have had children exposed in the open field to shame. There is no modesty or decency shown by the owner to his slaves. Men, women, and children are exposed alike. Since I have been here, I have often wondered how English people can go out into the West Indies and act in such a beastly manner. But when they go to the West Indies, they forget God, God and all feelings of shame. I think since they can do since they can see and do such things they tie up slaves like hogs moor them up like cattle and they lick them so as hogs or cattle or horses never were flogged and yet they come home and say they make some good people believe that slaves don't want to get out of slavery but they put a cloak about the truth it is not so all slaves want to be free to be free is very sweet I will say the truth to English people who may read this history that my good friend Miss S. 
is now writing down for me. I have seen a slave myself. I have been a slave myself. I know what slaves feel. I can tell by myself what other slaves feel and by what they have told me. The man that says slaves be quite happy in slavery, that they don't want to be free, that man is either ignorant or a lying person. I never heard a slave say so. I never heard a buckra man say so till I heard tell of it in England. Such people ought to be ashamed of themselves. They can't do without slaves, they say. What's the reason they can't do without slaves, as well as in England? No slaves here, no whips, no stocks, no punishment, except for wicked people. They hire servants in England, and if they don't like them, they send them away. They can't lick them, let them work ever so hard in England. They are far better off than slaves. If they get a bad master, they give warning and go higher to another. They have the liberty. That's just what we want. We don't mind hard work. If we had proper treatment and proper wages like English servants and proper time given in the week to keep us from breaking the Sabbath, but they won't give it. They will have work, work, work night and day, sick or well, till we are quite done up, and we must not speak up nor look amiss, however much we be abused. And then, when we are quite done up, who cares for us more than for a lame horse? This is slavery. I tell it to let people know the truth. And I hope they will never leave off to pray God and call loud to the great King of England till all the poor blacks be given free and slavery done up forevermore. 1831. And that's uh, that's it for this section. Um, the next time, next episode, we'll cover William Blake or we'll start with William Blake. And um, and uh, I appreciate your uh, you're listening to this um, this episode, and uh, I would appreciate your support so that I can continue these episodes and this uh, podcast. This is David R. Wellens, Reads Literature, Romantic Period, and uh, see you next time.